0: the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Now playing here at the Film Society is Generation Wealth, Lauren Greenfield's follow-up to her 2012 documentary, The Queen of Versailles. It's an extraordinary visual history of the ever-growing national obsession with wealth, bearing witness to the global boom-bust economy, the corrupted American dream, and the human costs of late-stage capitalism, narcissism, and greed. Following the opening night screening last Friday, Greenfield joined us for a QA. and a The film continues playing daily here at the Film Society. Head to filmlink.org for tickets. Let's go now to our conversation. Starting this Friday, the Film Society of Lincoln Center invites you to see films through The Female Gaze. This expansive series of 36 films shot by female cinematographers provides a diverse and dazzling new way of watching and thinking about movies. The Female Gaze begins this Friday, July 27th, and runs through August 9th here at the Film Society.
1: So I'll uh, start off with a few questions. Um, First, thank you for being here. This is a fascinating film. I mean, just in so many directions. Um, But I'll start by asking... So it's, it's a film about wealth and about materialism and material culture and uh, consumerism, but it's also very intimately a, a film about you and your work and your family and your past and how you make your living. And it's um, told in a way that really beautifully weaves those two together because it's, um, in many ways, a self-portrait of the artist. And I wonder how you... Conceptualized that and the relation between those two stories of, of the people who you who are your subjects, and making yourself a subject. It was really a
2: process. It it was a 30 month edit and it developed kind of along the way. It began um, through the subjects and through the photography, looking at the subject of wealth and consumerism. So the the pictures and the people in the pictures were always the way in. Um, And I was kind of in in the beginning as a kind of a narrator or guide to be the connective tissue between things. But the part um, about my own family really developed as I went in and also as I got kind of more and more overwhelmed by the project, which was a kind of um, summation of what I had been working on for the last 25 years. And I really started interviewing my kids and my parents as a way to as representatives of their generation because in the film I kind of wanted to look at historically how we had changed but um as subjects kind of brought up issues that I was also dealing with and then as my son and my mom kind of spoke to that issues those issues I felt like that should be a part of the film too because my work has is also about how we're all complicit in this culture, so especially because I had such um, larger than life characters I didn't want it people to leave kind of thinking this is about somebody else
1: and it's uh, I know in, in several of the reviews of the film um, critics have pointed out the, the themes of motherhood and, and, and mothers um, and and the relation between um, how wealth is passed down and other kinds of legacies, as as your son really beautifully brought out, um, and I I was interested in how, from a from a psychological standpoint, the the mother child relationship can sort of be related to the desire for money and the desire for con- to consume, and and whether that was was like a sort of guiding. I mean, that also evolved
2: in a way. It didn't start out to be a film about parenting, but it became that, about values and about legacy versus agency. Um, I think that I got interested in the kind of psychological driver for more, that especially realizing it wasn't just about money, it was about all of these other things that gave us value from fame to beauty to youth to sexuality. And the more... um, what I saw as the thing that brought them together was addiction. And addiction, I know from my work on eating disorders, comes from, in a way, a kind of trauma. And I felt like people were trying to fill an emptiness with something that could not fill it, so they just would continue. And so in a way, all of the subjects, including me, kind of we get to what that trauma is, or at least hint at it um, in terms of why... There's no satisfaction, and why it's really not about the money, but about the continually wanting more.
1: And, um, one of the one of the things that um, I think come, comes across really strongly is the relationship that you have with your subjects, and that that has developed over time. And you know, several of the the subjects in the film we see at different points in their lives and, and in your life. And um, how what has that experience been? I mean, has that I uh, I mean. To, I know that you've you've had similar ways of approaching um, subjects in, in your other work, but uh, in this film it was especially pronounced. Well, in
2: this film I revealed it a little bit more because you can hear my voice, and um, I mean, I think that that relationship is always at the core of all of my work, but um, in this film I tried to reveal it more so you can see um, kind of where where it comes from as subjects reveal themselves, but also why I'm drawn to them. Um, the th- the thing that was really exciting about this film is getting to go back and, and re-engage with people that I had photographed a long time ago, particularly like the kids in L.A., and to see them as parents and in their 40s and um, to to get to kind of work with them again after they've already had the experience of being in a picture or being in a book, um, that was really, really exciting. And then at the show, a lot of the subjects came, and at, when it premiered at Sundance, a lot of people came. And the other night when it premiered here, Jackie Siegel from The Queen of Versailles and Tiffany, and a lot of people have been coming out. So it's been really fun. It's almost like we've grown up together. Yeah.
1: That's and I, I imagine that uh, at this moment in particular, with the film coming out this year, Um, it has taken on uh, sort of resonances that maybe it didn't have at the beginning of the project, certainly with the political climate. And I mean, in the film you see Trump twice, but in a very sort of marginal way. And I wonder if that's been um, something that has come up a lot as the film has been released.
2: I think you, you see him a little, like about four times, because we meet him on The Apprentice, like the gold apartment, and then we find out that Jackie Siegel dated him. And he's in beauty pageants and then um, on the campaign rally and the inauguration. And, yeah, he was elected um, towards the end of the journey, but I was still very much the middle of the edit. And I felt like he was really the kind of expression of generation wealth. He was kind of the apotheosis of it. So many of the themes that I had looked at from materialism to kind of elevating wealth and wealthy people to celebrity to a love for gold and that kind of aesthetic of of the rich or uh, what somebody called dictator chic um, and um, and and beauty pageants like beautiful women as an expression of of success there were just so many parallels real estate fake it till you make it so um, in a way, he kind of made it more urgent. Um, because it wasn't just a culture that was maybe affecting kids or maybe affecting people who watch a lot of TV or people in China, but it was really us. Um, And I also didn't want to make it too much about him because I felt like my contribution was more to describe the culture that made him possible Um, and that he was kind of a symptom of a diseased culture. And, um, and so I put in the, the line where he's at a campaign rally where he says, this isn't about me, it's about you. Um, and then, of course, Jackie and David Siegel are behind
1: him. Well, I'm gonna throw it out to the audience now because um, I'm sure there are questions. I see one in the back.
0: Understanding the point, you,
3: every, all of these people, you know, were the victims, so to speak, of wealth or fame or- you come across in your years of looking at this, any people that were happy as a product of uh,
2: success or making money? Well, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything bad about having money. It's more, I'm looking at the pathology of always wanting more. That really came through when I met David and Jackie Siegel, and they had a 26,000-square-foot house and wanted a 90,000. I think it's something that does affect a lot of people because we're kind of living in this world of illusion where we're comparing ourselves to fictional people and people we know on TV and people we see on social media, it's kind of like a collective FOMO. And so everybody, um, well, a lot of people are affected by that. It doesn't mean, you know, it's not the money itself is what I want to say. It's really the kind of psychology and the drive for more, um, which I think I saw affecting all different kinds of people from rich to poor, across age, across gender, across border.
3: that you gained access to certain people and they seem to be willing to talk. And I don't know if you, how you pitched it and what they thought they were doing and what they thought would come up, very revealing things, sometimes one would think that people would be more discreet. So uh, how did you pitch it to various people and get them to agree and what did they think they were doing?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, there are in the book, there are 600 pictures. So there's hundreds and hundreds of people that I photographed and interviewed over the 25 years. Um, and so, and sometimes people like Casey Jordan, I met for, um, an assignment for GQ, for example, when she was with Charlie Sheen or had just had the bender with Charlie Sheen. And we were kind of, Getting her at that moment. And then of course when I went back to her, I was making a film. So it really depended on, you know, what I was in what context I met them in and filmed them in. But um, the thing about doing this work, especially nowadays, that is quite different than 25 years ago, is that everybody you meet now and go to photograph or film has looked you up on Google or watched Queen of Versailles or watched Like a Girl or seen my book Girl Culture. So I think that um, the thing about my work, which you can kind of see in the film, is I've been looking at similar things in a similar way for a long time. So people have a good idea of what I'm doing.
1: Was there a journey enough for
3: you in terms of
1: putting yourself
3: out there and... and Kids talking about things that aren't necessarily so flattering Here, but like, I just, as a filmmaker, I just thought that was so courageous of you, and wondering what
2: that journey was like. It wasn't something that I wanted to do in the beginning. In fact, I kept um, arguing with my editor, who had made other films about artists, and he kept kind of putting me in there as the third person, and I was like, this isn't a film about an artist, it's a film by an artist. He had done the Vivian Meyer film, And in a way, I felt like he was kind of building myths sometimes when it was in the third person, so I took it out. But um, it ended up being that, um, well, first I kind of needed to be in there to bring things together, and this journey kind of did that. Um, But I also felt like I have, I turned 50, I had, it wasn't that I didn't have vanity, but I kind of put it to the side and said, I've I've only been able to do this work because, to your point, people have exposed themselves with so much vulnerability and so much honesty and kind of um, agreed to do that for my work. And so I felt like I had to be willing to do the same when it was relevant. I wasn't like, I, got, I have to be in there. But, in fact, in the beginning I was like, I don't want to be in there. But as I felt um, it was relevant and it was also a way to tell the story and also um, a way in for the audience and a way to also say that we are all complicit. I just felt like I... And it kind of bubbled up in the interviews and then I felt like I wanted to include it. I mean, one of the things that we did... um, Oh, I should introduce Frank, my husband and producer. (laughs) But Frank was really worried that if there was scenes of me in it that it would be like self-conscious or staged in a way that the rest of the film didn't feel. And so we really didn't shoot anything expecting it would be in the film. We just kind of started shooting things that were in the neighborhood and then seeing like, like at first we weren't going to shoot our 50th um, anniversary party, our 50th birthday party and our anniversary party, but then, my editor was like, well, what if my boyfriend just shoots it with like a little camera? So we're like, okay, like no harm. So we just kind of shot things, but in a very low-key casual way so that if we used it, it wouldn't be self-conscious. And then it ended up being, um, well, the end. The whole ending kind of surprised me. And in a way, that's what why the family part became more important is because I started to think, particularly after Trump, that um, I could not end with like barreling towards the apocalypse which is kind of how the book ends and that I really wanted to bring out the insights of the subjects who had been on this journey and also what I learned so that there was a feeling of out of crash or out of collapse, there could be the possibility for agency and change.
3: It seems like we live in crazy making times and rich people seem to sort of be able to buy mental health and sanity in certain respects. Uh, The the faculty I know at Crossroads were brilliant and carefree and loving and good people. And a lot of them had gotten sick of the bureaucracy in public schools. And so here they were kind of doing a really good job, I thought, of enhancing the emotional intelligence and all over decency and, and kindness of these kids and 90% of them were very wealthy. And um, I just think we kind of live in a time where the powers that make our society make people crazy and the wealthy people or the wealthy institutions that make this craziness also can purchase all the psychological and emotional intelligence out there to serve their offspring. I don't know if you want to talk to that at all, but it was something I was even thinking about when I was teaching Crossroads and I
2: think it's become all the more true now. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not sure what part of that exactly to respond to, but I definitely think that education is, good education has become a privilege. That's one of the kind of, I mean, the big, um, in a way, backdrop for Generation Wealth over these 25 years is that we've never had so much inequality and we've never had so little social mobility. And in my dad's generation, it was realistic to grow up poor, be an immigrant, go to public school, and make a life for yourself. And now the recent UN report on poverty said the best indicator of your future is your zip code. So um, I think education is a huge part of it, not only because of the lack of social mobility, but also because um, I think part of living in this kind of culture of illusion is not having education and kind of the critical faculties in a way not having that authentic culture that Chris Hedges talks about at the end, which is kind of the antidote to the values of corporate capitalism.
3: I, was, I noticed in the film that you're, um, you have raised or are raising two sons with really um, healthy and modern outlooks both on you know their own privilege and on how to treat women. And as someone who um, will find myself raising a son very soon, I wonder to what you attribute that, and also, if your thoughts on that have changed at all since um, you've been working on this project as long, uh, as long as they've been around, and if there are things that you did consciously
2: and, and, and would continue. Um, well, I think their dad has something to do with it, but I think they've also kind of grown up in just a very um, like equal household where um, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like I was the primary caretaker. Um, I would say we split it pretty evenly and when I was away, Frank was really the primary. Um, so I think they had role models like that and then we also talk about those issues a lot, which doesn't mean they're not susceptible to you know what comes in from the popular culture, but we discuss those things. Um, I made a viral spot called Like a Girl that was on during the Super Bowl about, it was a social experiment where I asked kids, you know, what it means to run like a girl, kick like a girl. And I started it by asking Noah and he was like, did a really silly kind of um, imitation of running like a girl and that in a way helped me develop the spot. And I think he knew that he was mimicking a stereotype but he was still aware of it. So I think that's, You know, we talk about those things a lot, but thank you.
3: So the film seems to focus on the visual manifestation of spending capital, whereas if you think about what the true drivers are of of immobility and inequality, it's spending it on invisible things like cultural capital. For example, being well-traveled or the ballet lessons and and that creating the resume to get into this top college, which puts you on this quote unquote path, um, where it's like it's like a culture that's sort of antithetical to what's in your film, or like uh, Bobo's in Paradise. Where it's a different value system. So I'm wondering if you if you've done more of uh, if you've done that as well, because I,
2: I mean, I feel like I did that with my own story, right? Like my kids are, you know, Gabriel in the legacy poem says how much pressure he feels to have a good score on the ACT. So I did try to say that it's all part of the same cycle. And I think in the with the wealthy in China and in Russia too, but it's in the film in China, um, wealth 2.0 is not just about having the Louis Vuitton handbag. It's about having... It's about learning how to be rich. It's about learning how to eat in the right way and know the noble sports. And you can't just buy the Hermes bag. You need to be able to pronounce the proper pronunciation of Hermes. So um, I think all of that is kind of part of the swirl. The question is when I went back to my school to photograph how old was I or what was the age difference between me and the kids and did I um, need to do contracts with the parents? I was pretty young and I looked really young. So I remember one day I was at Hollywood High and um, I was photographing during lunch and then the bell rang and the kids went to class and I went to the vending machine to buy a soda and the security guard put his hand, blocked me and said, back to class. (laughs) Um, I think that definitely helped at that time and I also tried to show in the film how the different things I photographed and covered also kind of related to where I was in the life cycle. Like when I went in, I was very much identifying with the kids and then eventually identified with the parents and and started looking at aging and particularly women aging when I got offered Botox, um, unsolicited myself. And um, so I I definitely, I wasn't, I was maybe like, um, I don't know, maybe like eight years out of high school when I did it, but I looked pretty young. And, um, and with kids, because they're under 18, yeah, there are model releases that the parents sign. So um, that was something, not all photographers do that, but it's something that I started doing from the beginning of my practice because I was working with minors. And as I went on, it was a good way to just have clarity between myself and the subject, you know, that it's not just like I'm taking a picture for, for them or for, you know, Myself, my scrapbook, or something. Yeah, I mean, for me, Florian was so important. In fact, it was really when I interviewed him that I felt like there was a movie here because his trajectory had kind of covered the twenty-five years that I had been looking at, and I, I really felt like it was kind of the '80s and '90s where this began. And one um, touchstone for me was when Oliver Stone came out with Wall Street, and Gordon Gecko said, "Greed is good, and so Florian looked up to Gordon Gecko, who was intended to be a villain, but was a role model for um a lot of bankers, and kind of became the embodiment of greed and then he had a huge rise and then a big fall. And so it was kind of like the devil becoming a truth teller. So his story really spoke to me about Generation Wealth, and he wasn't somebody I had photographed before. He was somebody that I reached out to for this film. I had met him a long time ago in college, but um, I reached out to him for because I just, in a way, his story is kind of like a second backbone kind of to me of the um, film. Um, what do you mean? You mean people like Bill Gates or people who are like doing good things with money or?
3: Yeah, so, uh, yes, like the the quiet wealth, the people that, um, you know, the millionaire next door,
2: right, With Dr. Stanley about. Right. No, I don't have plans to do that because that wasn't really what this was about. This was really about aspiration. It was, it wasn't, it's not about the rich. It's about how these images of the 1% and how the 1% influences the 99% and influences the aspiration. So, you know, there's there's room for people to do good things with their money, but that's not what this story was about. Um, so, I mean, in my book, um, there's a section on old money as a kind of contrast to what we have become. I mean, what I really saw here in terms of a trend was more and more conspicuous consumption and more and more kind of outward showing whether or not you had it. And I, when I started doing this in the 90s um, and focusing on the kids in L.A. who are kind of next to Hollywood, they, even though their lives were really excessive, at that point their parents were a little bit self-conscious about it. They didn't want them to look too showy for the public. By the time I made a film called Kids and Money in 2007, it was completely different with reality TV. There were shows like, with titles like Filthy Rich. There were parents who were kind of proudly saying, my kid is like Paris Hilton and Nicole Ritchie and likes to shop every weekend. So I think the ethos around money has completely changed. And Trump is kind of the ultimate um, expression of that.
1: I think we could keep going but uh, that's a nice note to end on and we are out of time so uh, thank you you so much
0: the close-up from the film society of lincoln center is produced by michael odemark our opening music is by steelism you can subscribe to the close-up on itunes and stitcher the film society of lincoln center is a non-profit arts organization based in new york city supported by individuals just like you